Welcome to Network Capital TV. Uh, I'm Utkarsh, the founder and CEO, and today with me is Elvis. Elvis is a PhD scholar at Cornell, and uh, he's somebody who combines uh, research and entrepreneurship and innovation. So we thought of inviting him and learning more about what he's doing, career principles of uh, building meaningful stuff in academia, and um, a few other things. Uh, welcome to Network Capital, Elvis. Tell us a bit about who you are and what do you do today? Sure, thanks for having me here and thanks very much for the nice introduction. And uh, first I would like to give a very a short introduction about myself. Uh, my name is Elvis and as, as you can tell, I'm a Chinese, so it's definitely not the, my real name, <laughs> but I go by Elvis, so just call me Elvis. So I would be uh, the only Elvis from China. And I am <laughs> actually, uh, <laughs> I'm currently, pursuing my PhD at Cornell University. Uh, and I'm actually in my fifth year uh, doing a PhD in mechanical engineering. And my work was primarily uh, dealing with CO2 conversions. So in the past, I was trying to convert CO2 into a system of fuels with the energy input by the, by the sun. And during COVID, I also uh, do some uh, shift and uh, shift my work to deal with the COVID-19. Uh, yeah, that's the uh, brief introduction. Wonderful. Um, so what's the larger thesis of uh, your PhD? Why are you pursuing what you're pursuing? Sure. So my PhD is actually, uh, the, the focus for it is to reimagine CO2 emissions as an opportunity rather than a liability. That's the major piece. Uh, the reason I'm pursuing this is because I uh, so I have a very long history uh, and track record in the training in re renewable energy field since my undergrad. And um, I actually, in my uh, middle school study, uh, during one of, I, if I can recall this right, during one of the, my chemistry classes, my teacher was teaching me there are scientists there trying to use solar to split water into hydrogen and oxygen. And back then I thought, okay, this is a pretty cool idea. If this can be achieved, we can just use solar, which is uh, an inexhaustible power source to human civilization to generate uh, uh, hydrogen fuel from water, which is everywhere on the planet. So that idea was a spark. So inspired by that, I choose to study renewable energy uh, throughout my undergrad in China, my master's in Canada and the States. And also during my PhD, I had the opportunity to work on the really cool project to uh, think of the waste uh, CO2 emissions, not as a bad thing, but as a good thing to generate some good stuff from it. Yeah, that's it. How about your early childhood? Um, were you always interested in, uh, in this particular field of research? How did you wanna know uh, that your career should take this direction? Oh, that's a really good question. Actually, during my childhood, I had no idea of what I'm going to do in the future. Uh, and my only dream was that I can, because uh, a little bit uh, of background information about my childhood. I was born in a very, very small village in China, and my parents never uh, finished high school. My uh, grandparents never finished um, you know, uh, primary school. So I had no guidance, zero guidance from any of them. Really firmly in, in the power of education, even though they never received that, that education. So I, I didn't know what I'm gonna do in the future, but I know I have to uh, 
uh, take classes, have to perform, uh, get, get really good performance in school, so that I have the opportunity to uh, step out of my uh, village and then to uh, get access to the opportunities outside. And then during, uh, as I mentioned, uh, so during that process, during the primary school education, uh, middle school education, uh, high school education, I gradually find, okay, I'm, I'm interested in science. And then uh, during my undergrad training, uh, I choose the major of energy power engineering. And in that major, I receive a lot of fundamental training in, that, uh, in the disciplines related to energy power and renewable energy. And then I discovered after my undergrad, I need to learn the best stuff from overseas. So I went to Canada first because Canada is uh, one of the few places who can provide full scholarship to master's students. And in the States, it's mostly self-funded for master's. So I wanted to do a master's first. And then I went to Canada, do a master's. Uh, and then during that time, I condensed the two-year program into one and then spent one year uh, in Canada and the other half at MIT because I know, okay, in the States, they have they have the best economy. They have the best uh, science and technology. And then uh, when I uh, moved to the States, I discovered, okay, this is the place I want to pursue my future study. So that's, you know, where I am. And I hope this explains mm. why I choose this path. It's inspiring, you know? I mean, your parents must be so proud. I mean, they could not get much education, but uh, you're here about to become a professor or completing a PhD and also taking leaps and bounds in the entrepreneurship space. Um, Elvis, uh, when you... When you were thinking about your masters, uh, you could have taken up a job, you could have started doing independent research, you could have become an entrepreneur. Why do a PhD? What was was hmm. there a particular problem that you kept thinking over and over again? And what we're trying to understand through this question is that who should really pursue a PhD and uh -huh. who should not? Okay, yeah, I think that's a very important decision as well. I, uh, I know people are do their PhD, some of them, uh, they don't think that well, and then they step into a PhD, and then after that, they regret about the decision, because PhD uh, in the U.S. system is around uh, five years uh, minimum. Some people take six or seven years, so this is really huge commitment. Uh, so for people who are considering doing a PhD, I would suggest, first, uh, you need to ask yourself, if this is something you're really interested in, because five years is not a short time. And also uh, the advisor you're choosing is, is very important because you end up you know, being with the guy uh, for five years. And if your personality doesn't fit, that's going to be a disaster. So uh, looking back to my decision of pursuing a PhD, I think this uh, relates to my dream uh, of wanting to be a professor. And having a PhD is the minimum now you, you you have to have a phd and several and sometimes several years of postdoc training in order to get a position so that's uh why i, I decided to do a phd and also uh it is totally fine to if you want if the future career path is to do uh, entrepreneurship or go to industry uh, you don't need a phd to go to the industry actually a lot of the uh, industry people i have talking been talking to they are a little bit hesitant to take phds because they, they have to pay higher salaries to to phd graduates if the problem the uh, looking problem solvers if they only need people at master level or bachelor's level they, they will just take them 
if it's not higher PhDs. So uh, I, here's the advice I would, I would say. Uh, don't think about doing a PhD first. Think about what you want to be in the future first, and then use that to back calculate what you need to do to achieve that goal. If you want to be a professor, you have to do a PhD. If you want to be entrepreneur, you don't need to be a PhD. If you want to be a you know, researcher, uh, it's possible you can do a PhD, but it's always better to think ahead to, uh, but sometimes also don't think too much because uh, you never know what's going to happen. Maybe you change your yeah. mind after several years. Yeah. You know, um, we run many fellowships on network capital. One of the most popular ones is I don't know what I want to do with my life fellowship. Because this question, you know, keeps coming back to us. Uh, even when we have multiple degrees and we've worked a lot, we still try and figure out what step should one take. And um, it seems to me that you did want to become a professor. And when you finished your master's, it, um, it seemed like the logical step. But uh, walk us through any change that has happened or what kind of change happens in a period of four to five years while pursuing the PhD. Um, because passions change, curiosities change, but PhD mm. is a very specific question that you pursue. So how do you balance your curiosity with focus? Mm. That's a very good one, actually. I, uh, I think, so throughout my PhD, uh, during my training at Cornell, I have the opportunity to uh, not only get training uh, scientifically, but also since my project has been uh, uh, commercialized by uh, my advisor. So I had the opportunity to see how this process works. I guess if you want uh, me to say that the changes, uh, how to balance this, I would say in the future, maybe at the beginning of my PhD, I didn't think I would be uh, interested in entrepreneurship as well. But right now, mm -hmm. as I look at my future career, my ideal path will be, I become a professor, but at the same time, I will be really interested in doing some translational research to make some real world impact by my uh, innovations in my own lab. So uh, I, so actually right now I'm in a, a negotiation stage with several uh, uh, potential postdoc advisors. And one thing <clears throat> I will uh, cherish is what do you think about, you know, the commercial application uh, uh, capability of this research? And if this research can balance science, I do good science and also has the potential for real world applications, I would really be interested in that, in pursuing that in my postdoc. Got it. Uh, this is so interesting because uh, the role of the advisor who's also sort of helping you go to market or um, take it to the industry. Uh, how does, how do you go about choosing your advisor and what does the process really look like? Do you cold email people? How does that fit establish? Is it an interview? Walk us through the process. And how did you stumble into this wonderful advisor you have? Mm, okay. So uh, so I'm talking about the PhD advisor, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So the uh, the way PhD I choose and then advisor- Whatever the process uh, is. Yeah, sure, sure. So let me talk about how to choose a PhD advisor first. Uh, as, I, as I mentioned, uh, PhD advisor is really important because uh, you, you end up being with the person for at least five years. And if it doesn't fit, that's going to be a you know, huge deal. So the way I choose advisor, first, I, I will look at uh, the research uh, project, the current active research funding he or she is having. 
And then by looking at the project, I will have uh, some estimation about what I'm gonna do if I join the group. And also it's very important to uh, listen to, to connect to, if I'm really interested, uh, just get connected to the uh, alumni from the group. Listen to what they are saying about this advisor. Because mm. if sometimes, if you talk to the current group members, they, uh, so if the advisor is very pushy, they might not be you know, that honest with you. Talk to the previous alumni who already graduated and then mm. look at where they end up being. So the way I choose my advisor is, I look at the group alumni and some of them uh, become professors and some of them also, uh, uh, some of them are doing uh, research in uh, national institutes or national labs, but some also have the flexibility to do some entrepreneurship uh, to start, start their own companies or go to management consultants. So uh, as a person who really likes flexibility, this looks like, okay, this is a, a perfect match for me. And also by looking at the project, this project also interests me. And most importantly, uh, after talking to an advisor, okay, practice also it. Uh, so I say mm. these are uh, these qualities: the research itself, and also uh, the career chunks of the previous alumni, and the comments if they have about the advisor, and then the, uh, to see whether you have a percent match. That's the way I choose my. PhD advisor, and also very, very uh, small tip. Uh, since I'm, I was in Canada for a while, I know Canadians are usually really nice. So my advisor at Cornell, he's a Canadian American. So <laughs> that's the reason <laughs> I also choose him. And since I also have some uh, Canadian background, I did a, bachelor, a master's there. So he uh, knows the institution is also a pretty good one. So I think that also uh, my Canadian background also plays a role in that. So speaking about my uh, postdoc uh, advisor chosen, so this is a little bit different because uh, postdocs are, are just a, a, a temporary job. And the reason for is like a transition between uh, your PhD and the future uh, assistant professor job. And during that stage, I think the most important thing is first, uh, it's better to have a slightly different uh, focus than your PhD. Um, so that view uh, not only make yourself more competitive in the future job market, because you have knowledge in, you know, in multiple fields, but also you need to differentiate, uh, find a way to differentiate from your PhD advisor or your postdoc advisor when you start your own lab, you couldn't uh, do the same thing. So by doing training in a different lab uh, with a different focus, you have the opportunity to blend different proje projects together and come up with some idea of your own. And I think, uh, so right now I'm, I haven't decided on which lab to join, but uh, several labs uh, I have in mind, I've been talking to, I've been interviewing with, they are doing something slightly different with my PhD project, but still are in this renewable energy field. That's the, the way I choose postdoc advisor. Hope that's helpful to other people. Very. Very. Uh, so now comes to the very interesting PhD that you've had. Five years have been adventurous. Um, talk to us about how um, a day in your life really looks like today and versus how it used to look like when you started. And what we're really going to try to get is to understand how your project has evolved and now how did you really take it to market? But in phases, that's a very long story. Mm, talk yeah. to us about your day in your day and how it's evolved first. Yeah, sure. So 
Well, currently, due to COVID, the uh, the day daily life is a little bit different than uh, than the, the, the norm. Uh, but uh, speaking about the daily schedule, I we usually uh, make plans in the morning uh, about what I'm gonna do, or either experimental plan or uh, writing plan, and and then either go to lamp or continue writing. And since I mentioned this is the last year for my PhD, so most the majority of my time right now has shifted to uh, uh, to writing a lot. So previously I was in the lab a lot to uh, try to get some results. But right now I already have the results. I can uh, uh, keep writing uh, for risk papers. And speaking about the beginning of for the PhD, at that time, since uh, I were really different, uh, I was uh, allocated by my advisor to uh, several projects at the same time. And in addition to doing CO2 conversion, I was also doing some biomedical diagnostics. Uh, and that two projects, the not uh, relevant uh, by any means. So I had to, uh, so back then I had to make a decision. Uh, uh, so even though I had a, 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 the, the background in renewable engineering, it's just uh, uh, my, uh, so most of the lab people, they're actually doing biomedical diagnosis. So I have to make that hard decision first. So after the first or second year, I made a decision to choose the CO2 conversion as my uh, focus, my dissertation. I spent a lot of time in the lab. And in the meanwhile, gradually, uh, we try to commercialize the technology. So at that stage, since are also different, so uh, doing lab research is one thing and how to convert that idea to uh, a real business that requires a new skill set. So my advisor, uh, he uh, is actually very uh, uh, in in encouraging and he's supportive about this. Uh, so there, for before this, he already has two startup companies running. So he has some experience and I, I benefit a lot by working alongside, uh, not only by uh, doing research in my own lab, but also going to the startup company, talk to the engineers there. And uh, and then I think uh, th that interactions is very unique. Uh, uh, many people don't have that kind of experience, but that uh, interactions between uh, the, the startup companies also inspired me to think about how I can, uh, uh, do better research to make it uh, better for the market need. So I think this is a very uh, interesting uh, uh, journey for my PhD. I had an opportunity to uh, dive into multiple projects of different disciplines. And then in the meanwhile, work alongside uh, with the uh, people in setups and to know uh, how to move a product from a lab to the market. And then uh, in the meanwhile, I also find in order to, be, to become a professor, it's very important to uh, have uh, the skill to tell your own story, to make it uh, available to the, to the public. So I'm also very active in social, uh, in speaking at various uh, conferences. Actually, uh, this year, uh, I will be speaking at a summit called Post-COVID Summit. Uh, I was invited by the late former uh, president of France uh, to talk about uh, the innovation potential uh, in the post-COVID uh, world. So I guess this kind of experiences shape my PhD to a very unique experience, hand training in scientific research 
and commercialization and also public speaking. And I think these skills are very important if I start my own lab, start my own career in the future. Yeah, that's it. Uh, I think you are muted. Uh, uh, so what is the market need? Why does your research matter? Hmm. Oh, yeah, uh, that's a good one. Uh, the research need is currently, uh, uh, according to the latest statistics, at least seven of the 10 largest economies in the world, including China, uh, Japan, uh, the all place should be carbon neutral by the middle of this century. And in order to be carbon neutral, you have to have some technologies to either capture the carbon emissions in the atmosphere. But after capture the carbon, uh, you need to think about what to do, what to do with it. So our way is we, we, we look at carbon, not as the same we need to deal with, but the same we can generate some economic values. For example, for my research during my PhD, I'm, I'm trying to use solar energy to convert carbon emissions into uh, sustainable fuels such as methanol or ethanol. So by doing that, the only energy input is the solar and then the energy output is the methanol or ethanol which can be used to power uh, vehicles. So uh, this is the market need. This, there's a problem we have to solve, but in the meanwhile, we can generate some uh, good products by solving that problem. So that's, uh, I always want to say, it's my vision for the world to see uh, CO2 not as a liability, but as an opportunity. And I'm also glad a lot of people, both in academia and in entrepreneurship, they all agree on that vision. You work at the intersection of uh, mechanical engineering and chemical engineering, right? So yeah. talk to us about how your research is interdisciplinary in nature and what are the advantages of uh, multiple fields um, colliding, coinciding with each other? Sure. Uh, so my PhD field is in mechanical engineering, but as you can tell, this project uh, sounds like very chemical. So uh, I have to uh, use my, so I, I understand my own expertise is in uh, designing uh, better reactors, designing better sense for light to transfer. So I have my own expertise. So I don't compete uh, with chemists or, or, or chemical engineers since uh, there's no way I can compete with them. We have different trainings. So during my PhD, uh, there are people who do CO2 conversion. A lot of them are actually chemists and I don't compete with them. I collaborate with them. I bring my own expertise in reactor engineering and they have better expertise in catalyst development. So the, uh, and also we work with, uh, sometimes also with uh, material scientists. They supply the materials to us and then we put that into our platform to test. So recently there's also a trend to use uh, machine learning to help better uh, discover uh, kinetic materials. So right now we are also thinking about uh, collaborating with computer scientists to, uh, for the same goal of converting CO2 into uh, more sustainable fuels. So I would say interdisciplinary research is unavoidable uh, if you want to do some good research currently. And uh, one field, the knowledge from one field is definitely not enough. Uh, and for my case, 
I have to, I am from mechanical engineering background. I need to collaborate with people in, in chemical engineering, in materials engineering, and sometimes in computer science. So it is really important, at least for uh, STM uh, disciplines, uh, you need to collaborate with other people to see maybe they have a different angle to see the problem. And then by working with uh, the different people from dis different disciplines, some uh, wonderful ideas can be generated. This seems like it has been a lot of fun collaborating, learning with others, um, combining various disciplines. Talk to us about the challenges of pursuing a mammoth PhD. What are the most uh, difficult, most frustrating, most challenging aspects? What should people know? And how did you navigate them as and when these problems occurred? Hmm. Sure. So talking about the challenges, I think the biggest challenge for PhD students is the opportunity cost. Since we have to spend around five years in our 20s, also for some people in their uh, 30s, uh, this is really long commitment. And by doing that, a lot of my, my undergrad uh, classmates, the R&D uh, industry, and after five years, they get prom promoted multiple times. So uh, their salaries is definitely much higher than me uh, if you compare the salary. And uh, a lot of people uh, doing PhD, they intend to be a professor, but the key challenge right now is there are not enough jobs uh, in academia. That being said, only very small percentages of the PhD graduates, they can become P uh, 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 the assistant professors or associate professors in the future. So that is a really uh, a huge gamble. So I, here's, I would suggest, uh, if you wanted to be a, a professor in the future, you do, a, do a PhD, but you, you need to be flexible. If, for example, COVID, we, we never know there's gonna be COVID, but COVID-19 also affected the vacancies in academia. Because of COVID-19, a lot of schools just cut funding, they just uh, freeze the recruiting. Uh, if that's the case, a lot of the PhDs or postdocs, they will never have a chance to become a professor. That's the reason I say be flexible. And if this doesn't work out, you, have, you need to have plan B or sometimes plan C. And recently, I, during COVID-19, I studied a, pod, a podcast series called World Beyond Academia uh, Podcast. For, uh, during that, we invited uh, PhD graduates who don't become professors, but people who work in industries become engineers, all people who do engineering or management consulting. And sometimes they, they even choose other careers. I, we recently invite a person who is really famous who have a PhD in biochemistry, but end up being a, a talk show, uh, doing talk shows, being a comedian. So I, I would say be flexible and uh, there are certain challenges, but uh, be prepared to face the challenges. That's my suggestion. Yeah, the COVID uh, really changed things. The changed the landscape, transformed the opportunity space, not only in academia, but also in other spaces. Uh, thanks for laying it out so clearly. Um, when you look at the funding, one aspect of it is also um, geopolitical, right? Uh, how do countries behave with each other? Um, in the renewable energy space or in the alternate energy space, what do you think of global leadership? How, how does that change? And 
has that also sort of evolved the way people think about career choices in these industries, research opportunities in these industries, and so forth? Yeah, uh, that's a great question regarding the funding. Uh, I think it's definitely uh, related to uh, politics. For example, uh, I uh, came to the States in 2015 uh, as a Western student at MIT. So back then we have a, uh, so they have a different administration. Uh, Barack Obama was still there. And that administration is a big fan for renewable energy. So there's a lot of money there. And under the, uh, the, uh, the recent uh, administration by Donald Trump, it seems a really different. Uh, uh, he's a non-believer for climate change. That, that, uh, that being said, a lot of funding is already uh, being cut uh, for renewable energy field. So in that period, I think uh, countries like China and India uh, are stepping up to uh, global le leadership in that sector. But right now, as the new administration, the Biden administration, uh, I think they are trying to, uh, they already are going, uh, rejoining the, the Paris Climate Agreement and the, I think I'm pretty confident uh, in the near, uh, in the near uh, future, U.S. can uh, regain the global leadership in renewable energy field. Uh, but uh, we, uh, the, the, I want to say, what I want to say is we are not competing uh, with each other. For example, China and the U.S. and India, we need to work together to solve global warming because this is a problem not facing one single country. This is a problem facing human civilization. And for all the countries, we should just set, uh, put aside our differences and our politics because we face a common challenge. And uh, who becomes the uh, global leadership, global leader in this sector really doesn't matter to me. We need people to work together to tackle this problem together. That's incredible. Sam, thanks for laying out internationalism and the power of collaboration so clearly. Uh, in fact, if we look at the uh, innovation, how the genome project took place and how uh, social networks have evolved in the academia while pursuing complex challenges, I think there's a lot more of open innovation and collaboration and we actually need even more to address the current crisis. Have you uh, collaborated with people from different, uh, say, cultures or different... Um, countries and uh, what kind of frameworks are available? Um, what kind of opportunities can PhD students look forward to uh, when it comes to working with other countries and cultures and complex problems? We ask you because uh, you mentioned that you know, you've, uh, you've been invited by the government in France and a few other places to talk us through how that looks like and hmm. what is the output at the end of the day. Okay. Uh, so first, I have to say, I believe the collaboration between researchers in different countries, or different cultures, that is uh, the thing that is already happening, and that's the trend. No one can stop that trend. But there are definitely certain uh, things we need be, to be careful about. For example, uh, uh, intellectual properties. Uh, so during the, the past uh, administration, there's a lot of conflicts, for example, between China and the U.S. regarding this. But... Uh, so this is the one thing we need to be really careful uh, about. For example, if you do research at Cornell, all of the IP belongs to the school itself. And without the permission of the school, you don't have uh, the chance to uh, collaborate with people outside, which I think also makes sense. So there are certain protocols uh, that are already there. We need to follow the protocols, but uh, 
the last administration uh, in the U.S. is trying to reverse that trend to stop the uh, international collaborations, which I think is detrimental not only to uh, the people outside, but detrimental to the U.S.'s own scientific research. And uh, some of the projects you need uh, is, is not, uh, so there's definitely a lot of, for example, for my field, uh, one of the best researchers uh, in my field doing CO2 conversion is in Canada. So by collaborating with, with them, they bring their own expertise and perspective into this. So, so I don't need to build, rebuild everything from scratch. That's more efficient. You don't need to waste time on that. Uh, but again, as I mentioned, there are protocols there we have to follow. And then when we follow the protocols, uh, the, that's the key for uh, efficient and useful collaboration. And I believe in the future, when I set my own lab, I will definitely obey uh, all the protocols set aside there and then uh, look for uh, international collaborating opportunities. That will help not only bring uh, my own lamps research better, but also to uh, increase the, uh, the impact, uh, not only in the US, but also in China and then the worldwide, what, what stage. Uh, more power to you. You know, you have an incredible CV with lots of accomplishments and awards and paper publications and speaking opportunities, etc. Um, but I'm sure it hasn't been easy. Um, could you talk us through some of uh, your failures and what you learned from them and what advice do you have for people grappling with failures? Oh, yeah, that's that's a very uh, good question, actually. Uh, so for the, I actually have many more failures uh, than successes through my way of education. So, uh, and I have a lot of strug struggling moments. For example, during my uh, uh, high school, uh, uh, and then there's a uh, national college entrance exam in China. I wanted to be uh, a student at Tsinghua University, but I never got in. So that's the one failure. But again, uh, in, in my life afterwards, there are just so many numerous failures I faced. I would, uh, for example, there's uh, one fellowship, very prestigious fellowship in energy field in the US. Uh, I think last year, I also won the uh, one honorable, man, uh, honorable mention. Uh, they choose, uh, so originally they usually have three national winners, but last year they only have two winners. And unfortunately, I ranked the third. So uh, this is just one of the uh, failures I had. There's just so many there. So my advice would be, if you have the failure first, uh, you need to reflect to, to know, to think about the reason why you fail. And then uh, here's the thing, uh, fail and just, uh, if you fail, try again and then fail better. Eventually, who knows? If you try multiple times, you, you might uh, win that. And if you never try, you have a zero chance of winning. So try and then uh, learn from the failures. That's my advice. Yeah, pain plus reflection equal to progress. I think uh, Ray Dalio says that. And it's so true for academia because you spend all your time in lab and uh, we on Network Capital tell people to be more experimental and more scientific about their careers, conduct a whole bunch of experiments. So it's, love, it's lovely to hear a scientist talk about using the, this methodology for careers. Um, when you look at your entire life, you know, 
um, I think um, uh, by many standards, uh, if not all standards, you've done incredibly well. Who have been some of your mentors? How have you found them? And uh, what kind of a role have they played in your life? Hmm. Uh, I think mentoring is really important. Actually, uh, as I mentioned, I'm a first-generation student. So I, I, I don't uh, get a lot of guidance from my family, but uh, my family's belief, especially my grandmother, uh, she never finished primary school, but she believed so firmly in education. So I get a lot of uh, uh, encouragement from her. And so she's the you know, most important mentor for me to, even though she know nothing about my field, about my education, she never actually went out of my city, but I'm here I am in the United States. And, but she's still providing some useful uh, mentorship to me. And, uh, but besides family, I, I think it's very important to not only find uh, peer mentors and also, but also some senior mentors. So speak about peer mentors, uh, here's what I would do. I will look at what people uh, who are a few years senior than me, look at what they accomplish. And then, uh, so that I know if I want to uh, become some person like him or her, here are the things I need to do. Here are the program I need to apply. And then just uh, talk to them. You'll be really surprised. Some people, uh, they are really nice to share advice with you. So find the peer mentors who are a few years senior than you, and then speak to them, try to get their help. And if possible, when you see something that, uh, that, he, that could be useful to them, speak to them about that opportunity, just try to give back as well. So that by that process, you, you forge a very sustainable peer mentoring relationship. And then uh, in addition to peer mentoring, uh, talk to the people who are very senior in the field. That's also really important. For example, advisors, uh, and uh, not only your PhD or master's or postdoc advisor, but also people maybe in the same department. Uh, and during my PhD, uh, I get uh, several good mentors. They are not my PhD advisor. They are not on my PhD committee, but uh, they are really uh, willing to share the experience and, uh, sh and sending multiple real reference letters for me. So I, I think uh, family mentoring is one thing and peer mentoring and mentoring from other people who are very senior, that's the, uh, the key benefit. I benefited from this group, uh, from this process. And in the meanwhile, I think it's really, really important to speak about your own experience. If you become you know, uh, uh, a little bit senior, you have something to uh, mentor other people. For example, during my PhD, I had the opportunity to mentor uh, two, uh, three PhD, three uh, undergrad students, and during that mentorship process, I uh, uh, I helped them look at their essays, and then they later on pursue their PhDs. They won some very prestigious fellowships, so I'm really happy for that process. And then uh, uh, we not only become uh, mentor mentees but friends. And uh, besides that, uh, I. Uh, recently actually published article on uh, a mentor, uh, mentor on Cell Press. So in that uh, article, I talk about uh, how I uh, navigated all the uh, hardship from a first-generation student in rural China 
to pursue a PhD in Ivy League school in the U.S. and to land on the Forbes 30 on 30 and receive several other accolades. Uh, I think it's really important to share your experience so that people who were in the same boat as you, they know, okay, this is a role model there. We can also be successful. So some people, they are just hesitant to try. They are not brave enough. They don't know there's opportunities out there. But uh, I think the key, the information, the access to information is really important. Look at people who, uh, who were similar to your background and who achieved uh, great sense. These are the best examples to inspire them to be better uh, and to achieve more. So this is my advice to them. What a fantastic uh, piece of advice, I must say. Um, just like uh, to wrap up, um, when you look at your life, how much of it is luck? How much of it is hard work? And what advice do you have uh, for prospective applicants, scholars, entrepreneurs to uh, enhance their luck, mm. get more lucky? Yeah, so luck and hardship, I think these are both really important. Uh, so telling you about a, a very personal story, uh, when I was in my master's, I, I have a very good advisor who agreed that uh, it's a two-year master program, but if I work hard, I can finish up everything in one year and I can spend the other half to go do whatever I want. So I was really lucky to have that kind of advisor. So that's the reason I finished one in one year in Anmogil in Canada and then spent the other half at MIT. But here also comes the luck part. The person uh, who invited me to MIT is a very famous advisor. Very, uh, I think he's a, the fellow of National Academies of Engineering in the US, who is the top guy in the field. Uh, I was really lucky to get him invite me there. But during that process, uh, he passed away uh, very suddenly. Uh, so back then I was saying, okay, this is, I was really unlucky. He invited me to be a Western student in his group and he passed away. How can I do with it? So that's uh, the, the thing I want to say. Uh, if you have this kind of problem, which is not due to you yourself, you need to adapt to that really quickly. So after that happened, I speak, spoke to uh, some other professors in the department and luckily, uh, one, one or two of them agreed that, okay, you can come, but you can come only for three months and then let's say how it goes. And after three months of hard work, I earned the, uh, yeah, I earned the opportunity to stay there longer. So I would say uh, you, you, ne you can never rely on uh, luck or hard work uh, only. So sometimes you have to have both of them but uh, if you don't, if you, you just face very sudden incidents, uh, for me, the, the case is a little bit extreme, but these things, uh, they can also happen to you. But when it happens to you, don't feel you are the most unlucky person in the world. Uh, be, uh, you, you need to be really resilient and then to look for options because they already happened. You are not, you are, you are already unlucky. Think about, how you can convert that condition to something that you can uh, control again. Yeah, so this is my advice. Yeah, transforming adversity to advantage. In fact, uh, we have a podcast by um, a Harvard Business School professor, Laura Huang, 
mm-hmm. on exactly this subject. Um, I think you'll enjoy listening to her and she to the story. Mm. Uh, thank you so much, Elvis. It was uh, a delight talking to you, learning about your schedules, your research, how you're going about this, how you transformed your life, bringing, uh, having no access to quality mentors to basically serving as mentors to many as you advance to become a professor and entrepreneur. Uh, we look forward to being in touch and hopefully doing a round two when you start your post- postdoc or your company or, or any such adventure. All right. Thanks, thanks so much, Mohammy, here to uh, ha- have the opportunity to speak to you. It's really a long time since we last met. Uh, I back then, since it was really different, but let's just keep resilient. COVID-19 is a big uh, unlucky moment for the humankind but let's try to convert that into some good opportunities. Yeah, I love that. I, I think um, your fellow academic and trader, Nassim Nikola Talib says, right? Let's all try to become anti-fragile where <laughs> catastrophes strengthen us. I think uh, your research is clearly proof that you've become more anti-fragile and hopefully uh, others listening to you get inspired to do the same. Elvis, thank you so much for your time and uh, talk to you very soon. Talk to you soon. Thank you for coming here. I really appreciate it.